Okay, well, guess what? I'm just going to drop an intro, guys. I'm going to drop an intro. Fuck. Uh, <laughs> yeah, fuck is right. <laughs> Welcome to 30 Years Later, uh, our last uh, cast of the year. Uh, what a banger to go out on. Uh, what a hit. What a what a failed classic to talk about. Today, it's Godfather 3, directed by Francis Ford Crapola in this situation. <laughs> And uh, I'm joined by Christine. You're starting the you're starting the podcast with Francis Ford Crapola. That's your yeah. <laughs> I, and guess what? I am winning the podcast because of that. <laughs> <laughs> We've sold the casinos. All businesses having to do with gambling. We have no interests or investments. In anything illegitimate. Don Corleone. The Corleone family. Partners with the Pope. They may cry blasphemy. This is business. Now, I know you're into banks on Wall Street, but everyone knows you're the final word. You're like the Supreme Court. All I want to do is protect you from these guys, and your lawyers can't do that. I say we make them dead. You give me the order, I'll take care of it. I command this family, right or wrong. You know, Michael, now that you're so respectable, I think you're more dangerous than you ever were. Joined by uh, by my co-host as always, Chris Chafin, as well as Christopher Rosen, uh, writer at Vanity Fair, amongst a number of other places. One of the great people on the internet talking about entertainment. Chris Rosen, thanks so much for being here. Say hello to the to the uh, person listening to this. Hello, one person. This is great. I'm so honored to be here with you guys, uh, and I love uh, French for Crapple. It's going to be hard to recover from that one, but I will try. <laughs> <laughs> we're 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 this. this 30 years later is a class act. We're a class it's act. A class act, start to bottom. And I tell you, when we have a guest, we clean it up. So this is the well, fancy version that we're having right now. Yeah. Uh, so this movie uh, released end of the year 1990, primed for Oscar season. We have returning favorites, Al Pacino, Diane Keaton. Um, any other returning re- returning favorites of this? I mean, there's some there's some great old faces. Eli Wallach is in it, but I think the only you know heavy heavy hitters returning are uh, Pacino and Keaton. They're the only ones left to return, right? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I don't know, Chris. You're the and uh, Talia Shire is there from uh, the first. Oh, year. Talia of Shire, of course. Of course. Talia Shire is appearing in it, scene after scene. For no fucking reason. <laughs> right. Well, because they ran out of, like, Corleones, basically, because everyone got killed off in the movies. And then they lowballed Robert Duvall, so he didn't come back at all. He was just like, you know what, fuck you guys, I'm out. <laughs> so he replaced him with right. uh, George Hamilton, I believe, right, is the yeah. is in it. Duvall. They replaced him with George Hamilton, which seems like either a fuck you to Robert Duvall, or like, just anyone like... Can do this, anyone can do this fucking part. Like, who cares? We got George Hamilton like, to do it. Fuck you. <laughs> 
Duvall must have gone to see the movie and been belly laughing every time George Hamilton was on screen because he is absolutely no no Robert Duvall whatsoever. And just completely um, inexplicably, like George Hamilton is there instead of just I mean, he's just like a new person at the Corleone organization, you know? Like we don't get any like sort of backstory for who this person is or why he's there. It's just like, yeah, you know, this crazy looking fucking tan monster is here doing all the business negotiations for the Corleones. And the only explanation we get for Duvall is that his son is now a priest played by the great John Savage. Um, but there's a, but there's some sort of reference to uh, Duvall being Duvall's character being dead, right? Something like that. Is that correct? Yeah, I think he dies off screen. They're like and uh, Pookie returned to his home planet, basically, or Pookie <laughs> returned to his home planet with Duvall. Yeah, right, right. Um so uh, let's 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 start with uh, very briefly what we thought about the movie, and then we'll try to go into it chronologically. But you know, whatever happens, happens. <laughs> this is a free for all. <laughs> no rules, guys. That's what we came here for. Um, I, I'm going to go ahead and set, start and say, not a fan. <laughs> not a fan. It is not an unsung masterpiece, in my opinion, or an overlooked masterpiece. It is um, there. It felt at numerous times like there was. With the exception of Gordon Willis's cinematography in certain scenes, it felt like there was no one behind the wheel uh, of this movie. Yeah, I mean, and so one thing to say, I guess, is that we're Ricky and I watched this like re-release version of the of the movie that's just come out. It's like on Amazon right now or whatever. It's called what is it? Coda: Colon the Death of Michael Corleone. Is, yeah. is, is is that the title? Yeah, right. Yeah. And so it's a recut version, and and uh, we didn't go back and watch the original, or at least I didn't. And, uh, but I did read about what the differences are and we can talk about them, but like, so there's been a lot of people writing about this movie and talking about this movie and saying like, actually this movie is good, LOL, because it's like in history, it's a piece of shit. Right. So, but yeah, Ricky, like watching it again, I was, I mean, there were moments where I was like, oh, this is okay. And then there were long stretches of it that were just like a, like a TV show basically, you know, or like a weird eighties movie, like drug action movie, you know? And maybe that's what Francis Ford Coppola wanted to make. Like he saw, you know, like Lethal Weapon and I don't know, like every other movie where it, like Beverly Hills Cop, where it ends with like drug dealers and machine guns. And he was like, I invented that shit. Why don't I get one of those movies, <laughs> you know? And this I, is what it is. I think, I mean, well, actually, I have said my a little bit of my piece. Chafin, you have said a little bit of your piece. Rosen is going to come in guns firing here because he is the uh, he's the supporter. He's the big believer in Godfather three. Take it away, sir. I actually think it's good. I, I'll tell you what the problem. Uh, here's the, here's my take on it. A very nuanced take. I think uh, it's not anywhere near as good as you'll be surprised to know. Not anywhere near as good as the Godfather or the Godfather part two, which I think are really a masterpiece uh, movies, obviously. But I rewatched the regular version uh, like two years ago, maybe, or three years ago, the real version. And then I rewatched, I watched the Coda recently. My hottest take is actually, I don't think the real version is, the Coda is like the new edit that people are like, oh, maybe it's an overlooked masterpiece. I don't think it's that much better or any different, really. And I think the changes they make that he made are like, like, so basically one of the big changes is they like kind of like lay up or they tee up the beginning of the, the movie itself is like, is like kind of very confusing because like the Corleones get involved with like the uh, the Vatican Bank and it's like all these layers of conspiracy that are totally meaningless and then the new version kind of like tees up a little of what that is and I'm just like I don't care it doesn't matter I don't need it teed up and that said I find That's... a lot of it like really compelling because a I think it's like so it's Pacino coming off 
like a real bad run of movies. I think he did like Sea of Love maybe in like 87 or 88 or 89 and like kind of had a comeback. And then he's really good in The Godfather 3. Like I think he's legit good. And like I think the idea of Michael like trying to, you know, go straight and have like some kind of legacy for himself but trying to skirt punishment and then having his daughter get murdered in the end is like as an ultimate punishment is really compelling stuff. So I like like all of that. And I think it's like not bad. I actually didn't think it's that bad. I just don't. I don't know. I think like some of it, you know, my, my, I understand the complaints. I think it's like if it's not a flawed masterpiece, I definitely – like your critique of like nobody's behind the wheel, I'm like – I definitely don't think he had any reason. It sounds like he didn't really want to do it, right? If you read, like, the history of the movie, he said, like, at times, I think he said he only did it for the money because I don't think he was, like, you know, basically Paramount was like, we're going to do this anyway. And he was like, well, I'm not going to let you do it without me, so I guess I'll do it. He didn't, like, he didn't seem to want to make it. And you get that sense throughout because I think, like, a lot of it doesn't work. But then I watch it and I'm like, oh, man – Fucking Michael is awesome. Like, the stuff with Michael is so good. And, like, the idea that he's so arrogant that he thinks he could, like, paper over all of his mistakes and then, like, still uh, get away with it is just – is very good to me. I don't know. I think that's compelling. I think I, – I, I think that's – I think that's fair. There are – the moments of the movie that I like are his confession – to the soon-to-be Pope where he confesses killing Fredo. I think that the framing of that scene behind the wall of flowers and Michael sort of wrapped inside the, 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 the sort of wreath there is really beautiful. And Pacino's performance in that scene is, is incredible, but there are so many scenes in this movie that on the face don't make sense on the face. It's like, why didn't you take another pass at writing this scene? It doesn't make sense that we would go from point A to point F here. How did, how did that happen? I'll start like right from the beginning with Andy Garcia's first scene, Andy Garcia's first scene with Michael and, and Joe Mantegna where Andy Garcia is like a hood who was Sonny's illegitimate son. And uh, Joe Mantegna is like, you know, one of the bosses of little Italy that Andy Garcia has been working for, and they have a beef and they're trying to solve it with Michael, but Michael's legitimate now and doesn't want to deal with it. And Garcia is just like an over the top, insane hothead in this scene. He's grabbing his dick. He's bouncing around. It's like, it's unclear if he's supposed to be on not just some cocaine, but maybe all the cocaine <laughs> yeah, in the world. Like a huge amount. Yeah. He's basically like huge Christopher Moltisande vibes, like in this scene, right? Oh, he's yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> Like, <laughs> they're like what's the michael's like oh tell me what 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 is the problem going on and andrews is like oh this fucking guy everyone i'm not here to ask you for any kind of help i could just kill this bastard he's the one who needs the help so kill him what does all this have to do with me well he's going on behind your back saying fuck michael corleone all the time that's it that's one thing it has to do with you right say it to his face one time say it to his face one time Mr. Corleone, all bastards are liars. Shakespeare wrote poems about What am I going to do with this guy? What am I going to do with this guy? What fucking movie is Andy Garcia in right now? And why didn't anyone stop this? And then Michael Corleone is consistently telling them to calm down. To bring, <laughs> he's, trying to, he's, trying to like, he's trying to like calm them down. And he keeps trying to tell them, like, you can't work for me unless you calm down. I'm going into this scene in depth because I think it's a microcosm for how so much of the movie plays out. And then Andy Garcia 
bites off Joe Mantegna's ear. Joe Mantegna storms out, and Michael turns to Andy Garcia and goes, okay, you can work for me. What? <laughs> know, like, what the fuck? Like, no. the scene, I I forgot how this movie goes. Like, knowing that way gangster movies go these days, I thought Michael Corleone was going to kill him after this because he's been, he's made this whole huge deal about how, like, you're too much of a hothead. Like, I've done everything I can for you, and if you can't work it out, I don't know what to tell you. He finally gets them to, like, shake hands and say, like, we're friends. And yeah, if he fucking bites Jolantania's ear off. Like, I, I was very surprised that then Michael was like, well, but your family. And so obviously I'm on your side without now. Missing, without missing a beat, too. He didn't say anything along the lines of like, okay, you know what? You know, you need to come. We need to figure out what to do with you and calm you down. Come work for me. He seems to be impressed, even though it's contradictory <laughs> to everything the scene had been about for what was a fucking 10 minute scene it felt like it's a really really long scene yeah well i mean i'll tell you this like and again i'm the one defending this but like the andy garcia character feels like watching it it feels like it was like three or four characters that they just threw into a blender and were like (laughs) we have one famous person left in the cast and he's just going to do all the parts because you're right he comes in he's Sonny's illegitimate son and then he's like a small time hood and then by the end of the movie, he's Don Corleone. Yeah, he's right? Don like, Corleone. It's just, it's like, <laughs> not to jump ahead, I don't, I don't mean to like go out of order, but I'm just like, he literally becomes Don Corleone at the end. Well, and they're just like, it's it great, no problem. Andy Garcia is like the only person with a dramatic arc in this movie. Like he, the movie is his movie. It's about his growth as a gangster. You know, like that's like the main. Well, that's also that's true, and that's also like I mean, he had said Andy Garcia said like that that was another idea they had was like eventually a Godfather part four, which has never happened would have been like him coming of age. Like De Niro was in Godfather two with like a young Leonardo DiCaprio, I think as like a young Andy Garcia, maybe it's just like a weird, they had like all these like weird things that they were going to do with that character. And you definitely feel that in the actual version because he just doesn't make any sense because he's just literally like three people and also no, I, think I, would, leo, I think leo was going to be a young sonny corleone in in part oh four. that's right you're right you're right you're right because that's really, it. That's because it. really that's what, it. Happened, what happened with part four was that word got around town about part three and they were like i'm not doing this movie you know it's like I'm not making. I'm not making part. Francis is not of his mind. He's not. I'm not doing that shit. And then Aaron Coble went and did went and did Jack instead. Oh my god! Oh my god! But if you think about like the leading men in the Godfather movies, it's like you know Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, James Caan, and Andy Garcia. Like why? I mean, nothing against Andy Garcia, but he hasn't really gone down as like one of the great actors of all time. And it's just very weird that he is like he's like the second lead of the movie in a certain way. I think at this time he, he is, was yeah. he was going he was like thought to become that. You know, he'd done a few movies in the 80s. He's pretty beautiful. Uh, I think he was thought to to soon to become that kind of leading man. I, I, I could be wrong because his performance in this movie, maybe it's just because Coppola wasn't directing him. His performance in this movie, in my opinion, is not very good. I mean, I don't think he's very good in the movie either. I mean, Chris, I know you're the defender of the movie, and I know in well, a certain way he's in- good, but like... Well, I don't know if he's bad. I think the character is rough, but I do think he's in like probably the best scene, which is the Joey when he kills Joey Zaza. I think that scene's awesome. I like that scene a lot uh, when he like runs through and he's on the horse and stuff, and it's totally insane. But he I, just is not given all to work with. I don't think at all. So I don't I, know if he's bad in it, but like I think the character is rough. 
I have concerns about that scene. We will get to it. But well, I what I will say is <laughs> oh my god, will we? I don't know. <laughs> There's so much to talk about. What, what I will say prior to the the horse scene with killing Joey Zazo, played by Joe Mantegna, I think the best scene of the movie and the best scene with Andy Garcia is. Bridget Fonda in the leather jacket. Yeah, oh, yeah, that seems good. good. I forgot about that. That's a really good scene. I mean, and we're all on the same page as to why that's a good scene, right? Like, there's, I mean, it's a fine scene, whatever. A couple guys show up, he kills him. But dear God, Bridget Fonda, like she showed up in the movie and my friend and I were watching it and we like fell out of the chair. We were both like, oh my God, look at how beautiful she is. She's fucking stunning. I had forgotten about the existence of Bridget Fonda basically until I saw this scene in the movie and I was like, oh, right, Bridget Fonda. Oh my God, like that's amazing. And then- and then she just disappears. Her character is just gone. <laughs> like, she doesn't really have no... a character. Yes, she does. She has. There's no reason for her to be there. And it's weird because they make no a point reason. of panning over like her suitcase or something that has a bunch of cameras in it with some kind of ID badge. Am I totally making this up? Like right at the beginning, before they even get to showing them in bed. Like, isn't that, it's like, I thought they were setting up that she was like going to be some kind of journalist or something. And it was going to, I know it didn't have anything to do with anything. And she wasn't in the movie again. No, she like, she sleeps with Andy Garcia. Two guys break in. Andy Garcia kills them. And she gets mad at him because of the way that he sort of seems like he's going to let her get killed or something like that. You know, it's kind of, it's pretty cliche stuff. And, uh, then that's it. She's out of the movie. She throws a pillow at him and is like, you bastard! And then she's gone. Never to appear again, if I remember correctly. Yeah, no, no. Um, fatal fatal flaw of the movie. <laughs> but I do like that scene, though. I think that scene is good, where he's, like, trying to talk them down, and it's just become... That was sort of when it struck me that this was, like, Andy Garcia was the star of this movie, because it's just, like, this really extended, weird scene of him, like, having this psychological back and forth with these two like guys that have been sent there to kill him and then he ends up killing both of them you know um i was like where where are we where are we what is happening like is is he this is he the focus of this movie i mean not to get too heady about his performance but you're right chris about his like the movie feeling like a lethal weapon to a certain degree because he's supposed to be Sonny's son. Yes. And if you think about James Kahn's performance as Sonny, it's it's grounded, it's believable. He's a tough guy and a hothead, but it's James Kahn. It feels it feel he is Sonny Corleone. Andy Garcia feels like he's in an action movie. It's like oftentimes yes. his performance feels like mm-hmm. he's doing something out of an eighties action movie, and it has no there's no believability tonally in like when it's next to. Al Pacino, especially in the helicopter shootout when he's like hiding oh behind a pillar and he's and like he's got this face on like 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 he's trying to be cool instead of you know getting shot at by machine guns in a small <laughs> room where they would probably all just be dead and not have gotten out of there. I, I mean, Chris, I know we're kind of jumping around, but Ricky, you brought up one of the like uh, most famous scenes in this movie, which is this um, helicopter machine gun scene. Um, can I just can I just ask you to walk me through why this is a great scene? <laughs> why I think that's a great scene. The heli- I like the helicopter scene because well, I like both those scenes because I think the set pieces are good. I mean, again, it's just like the motivations are a little dicey, I guess. And obviously, like we we didn't even talk about Eli Wallach playing an obvious villain from minute one. No, uh, no. <laughs> No chance he's not a bad guy uh, setting up Michael, basically. But I think that scene is staged pretty well. I don't know. I don't think those – I think those early scenes are good. I think where you run into a problem with Coppola, and certainly I think actually 
he's not good is when like you're right like it doesn't feel like anybody's telling the performers what to do and the characters have no sense of anything so you end up with like andy garcia doing not just a james con impression but like also doing pacino basically at some yes. points and like doesn't yes, mean anything yeah. you have sofia coppola is we didn't even talk about yet and i know mm-hmm. it's like maybe seemingly uh you know, invoke to say, oh, she was not given a fair shot, but she's really, really bad in it. And I would definitely blame his, him because, like, he should have known better than to, like, put her in a position to be, you know, maybe not that good, right? Like, I don't know. I just think he should, like, there's no no reasonable world where you'd watch that and say she's doing a good job. Uh, and it's not really her fault because I don't think she's an actor. And, and it's like you have also, all these different things. And, also and like, I think... The script dictates her to be a bad actress. The lines she is given are atrocious at that time. You know, like... But then, like, I think, like... But, like, I do think, like, the the way he stages scenes is still great. So I think the way that, like, that scene with the helicopter is awesome. I just think that's so cool. And, like, even if it is an 80s action movie or whatever, I'm like, yes, I'm in for that. And, like, him chasing Joey Zaza around Little Italy, I'm like, that's good. I like that. (laughs) Jump on a horse, like, you're battle a uh, return of the planet of the apes or whatever and like just like go for it i'm like i'm in for that too and like there's a lot of those scenes i think are really good so i like that's why i find it compelling because i think like every for every ridiculous character interaction especially with the new characters i do think like like while we're trashing a lot of this and even me as a defender is uh i would say that like Pacino's arc and like all of the Pacino stuff is really good. I think Diane Keaton is really good. I think her two scenes with Pacino are great. Like all of like the older characters and stuff and those relationships, not that there's that many of them, but those are good. And like that keeps me in, that keeps it going. I feel like in the helicopter scene, following the helicopter scene, Al Pacino's character has a diabetic stroke, which is the first time we've learned that he has diabetes. I mean, look, no offense to anybody who's living with diabetes, but he's really poorly managing his diabetes, I would say. Why can't he manage his diabetes? There are numerous scenes where he's like, I need sugar! And it's like, why don't you have enough He's supposedly a billionaire. This movie would have you believe he can write a check for $600 million and it's not really a big deal. It's like the 70s, so maybe it was like a different time in the state of diabetes. Maybe it wasn't a whole another thing that we have to get into is it really the 70s yeah name looks for a lot me like one thing that was like the 70s that happened in this movie you know like, <laughs> like andy, hey andy garcia is literally wearing a leather jacket that was maybe tailored the day before somewhere <laughs> it's like, like it's not like nothing about the movie says 1979 it's it's like no one was trying not <laughs> even close curious. no not even but, close anyway the helicopter scene Afterwards, when Mike, before Michael has his diabetic shock, he does the classic line, the one classic line from the movie where he says, just when I thought I was out, they pull me back in. And he says, our, our enemy has yet to reveal himself. But then they kill Joey Zazo. Obviously, they do it before Michael can say to do it. But are we to believe that Eli Wallach was the one that set up the shooting, the 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 helicopter shooting, or was it Zazo that set it up? Because wasn't Wallach- it was Eli Wallach? It was Eli Wallach pulling the strings on Joey Zazo. But wasn't Wallach in the room? He leaves because oh. Joey leaves. I think Joey. Oh, that's so. Right. I don't know he if this leaves. is in the version, right. but Joey, like, he leaves, and Eli Wallach's like, "Oh, I'm gonna go take. Let me go. I'll just take care of it. It'll be fine." And then, like, everybody's murdered. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. What's that? Makes sense. My question about this. Okay, so just to this scene, this helicopter scene. So it's this whole thing. Michael's trying to go straight. He's buying out all the gangsters from all the casinos. He's giving them this huge, they're huge checks, $50 million, blah, blah, blah. This is the point of this meeting, right? 
and I guess Joe Montana doesn't get enough any money or enough money. And he gets, he's very angry. He doesn't want to be cut out of the casinos. He's like, why can't I be the one that goes straight? And they have a big fight and he leaves, right? Okay. Yes. Okay, so he had, but he didn't know going into this meeting exactly what was going to happen. Like, what if Michael had had a fucking check for like $50 million for him? You know, he had a helicopter with a machine gun on standby, like in case something went wrong in this meeting. Or was this like- I think they were just- I think they were just going to pull out and get rid of Michael. I think they didn't like Michael going straight and like ruling over the mafia or whatever. I mean, this is just crazy to me. I mean, this, but so, but at the same time, he murders every other mafia boss. Like, and up to this point, they keep saying like, Joe Zaza's nobody. Like I'd see somebody like Joe Zaza coming a million miles away. And like, obviously, so, you know, obviously Michael, like you're saying is hubristic or whatever. But at the same time, like that is kind of the light he's presented in. And then all of a sudden he has like, a helicopter with a machine gun and this exactly timed, you know, event like this. It's kind of like completely out of left field. I mean, it's like this, like, yeah, action movie stuff. We're talking about action movie logic rather than like the logic of the Godfather movies up to that point, you know? It's a set piece, right? I mean, you like it because it's a set piece. The difference between this and Godfather 1 and 2 is that it's a set piece without any basis in reality. Whereas, like, well, I think, that, I think that's true. And I think the other thing is, and I totally agree that these are not, this is not as good as the other two movies. I think the difference is those other two movies were very much soap operas and very much like franchise movies, right? Like, it was like they are not. They were like mainstream cinema, right? It's like Star Wars, but like not, basically. And yet they were reined in enough that it didn't feel like that. And I think with like the the uh the all the uh, all the the uh the straps are off on Godfather Three. Like he does not care about he doesn't really care about I just think that I think what really comes down to is he doesn't care about making it as much as he did the other two. And that's yeah. very apparent in it. But I still think it's a, even with that, I think just because of the setting and the characters, it's still good. It's just not like, it's like, it's just not great. It's not The Godfather. And it's like, if it was just some random movie instead of The Godfather Part 3, if it was like whatever you want to call it, uh, it would be like, oh, this is a good movie and like you'd move on. I don't think it was like a calamity though. I think I... the reputation of it being a calamity is not not necessarily fair. <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> I, 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 I think if it was just some random movie, you would be an hour into it screaming, this doesn't make sense. What is this movie about? <laughs> because even with the context of the first two movies, I was constantly screaming, what is the point of this scene? What is this movie about? And then as it progresses towards the end, there are multiple redundant scenes where it's just sort of like, that just happened. Why do I have to watch a scene where he tells somebody what just happened in the previous scene? This movie <laughs> is just like, it, like you're right that The Godfather 1 and 2 were soap operas and what made them soap operas was that they were plotted extremely well. And there was always a purpose for a scene as it, as it, as it progressed forward. And there tension. Moments. And I, I didn't feel yeah. any tension in this movie at any point. Do you know what I mean? God, like, well, of course. I mean, one of the main storylines that is supposed to produce tension is whether or not Andy Garcia is going to be able to continue to fuck his cousin. Like, <laughs> what, what in the fuck was that? Like, why the whole is this the plot of this movie? Why make this part of the? Is this like some kind of metaphorical thing? Like, why is the main love story two cousins wanting to fuck each other? 
I've been trying to wrap my head around that because my friend, while we were watching it, was like, this is insane. Like, if they wanted to get married, they'd have to go through the Catholic Church and they'd have to go through this whole process because their fan, their blood relatives... It's illegal, illegal right? <laughs> like, within, the, within the Catholic Church. And so at the end, when they're in Italy and, like, the Pope is there and there's all these things going on, it's like, oh, maybe it's about the younger generation, like not caring about the, the the rules and the legitimacy of the church as much as a previous generation, but that's not really there. And that's me trying to come up with some sort of justification for it. The real thing is that forget Sofia Coppola's performance. They are cousins. The whole <laughs> yeah, like... to the point where the, one of their first scenes together, they call each other cousins. The second scene together, they go and look at where their grandfather got his start in New York. And then they start making out. And you're supposed to think it's sexy. You're supposed to want them to be oh together. God. But you're just sitting there going, you are cousins. <laughs> this is not okay. It's like the relationship has the form of, of it's like the forbidden lovers and their dad doesn't understand that they're in love and he's trying to drive them apart. But it's like you're saying they're cousins. <laughs> like, yes, Michael Corleone is right. You cannot fuck your cousin. I'm sorry. But, but Michael is also Michael is also telling them not to get together, not because they're cousins. He's saying it because he doesn't want her involved in the life. So he's not even saying to her like, hey, you shouldn't do this. You got you guys are fucking cousins. You're gonna have inbred kids. It's gonna be bad. They're gonna be all demented looking and shit. Instead, he's like, I don't want my daughter with a gangster. It's like it's secondary that they're cousins to him. It's so wild, dude. It's so wild. I mean, what is your read on this? What is what why 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 is the primary love story in this movie between two first? I have cousins? no I can I can um, I honestly have no idea. It doesn't make it it never made any sense in nineteen ninety. It doesn't really make a lot of sense now, even watching it. Uh, I just try to like kind of block those scenes out. There, there are not that many of them. Actually. I mean, there's kind of a lot of them actually. Yeah, there's like I think there's like two or three. <laughs> it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And again, they have like no, they have no chemistry, and like their age difference is very off-putting. I find yes, in the movie because yes. he's like thirty years old, legit, and she's probably like like nineteen you know, or something. I think she's like eighteen or nineteen yeah. in real life, and I don't know how old Mary's supposed to be in the movie, but like maybe the same. It just feels like. It's a little tough. Uh, it's a tough look for Andy Garcia. And, and like, look, look. Let me just say, like, okay, I went out with an Italian American woman for a number of years, right? She had a she would her family would have cousins parties where all the cousins would hang out together. In an Italian American family, it's not unusual to see people who are like technically your cousins, but you're not really related in any meaningful way. And especially if you're in some kind of gigantic crime family, like. Yeah, she, so I'm, what I'm saying is it would be totally plausible for them not to be first cousins. So why make them first cousins? <laughs> like, why do that? They could have at least been second cousins for the love of God. Like, I think, is it supposed to be enough that they're estranged? Or actually, they're not even estranged. Because she says, remember when we used to play as kids and run yes. around together? So they, like, clearly grew up together. Well, that's the other problem with the character of, of uh, Andy Garcia, right? Is like... Yes, you're exactly right. She's like, oh, we used to run around together and blah, blah, blah. But when he rolls in, it's like you in the beginning of the movie, you get the sense that he's like been not around. It doesn't it feel that way. Like he's just yes. like the lost Corleone yes, sibling. Yeah. And he's like, oh, nobody knows who I am. And like they literally don't know who he is. And he's about to fight like the maitre d' or whatever. And some like bullshit Sonny call. Oh, because he's not on and the then, list. Like, he's minutes, not on the list. Right, he's not on the list. And then like five minutes later, she's like, oh, we used to play together as kids. And I'm again, I'm like. These char- what character is this? Like, it does feel like that was like a separate character, right? Like, and this sunny kid in the beginning of the movie is not 
you know, the kid who is the friend with Mary at like a, you know, when they were cousins is not the Don Corleone at the end of the movie. It just is like, it, that character really doesn't make a lot of sense. When he's going <laughs> to, when he's going to fight the maitre d' in the beginning, Andy Garcia, like the guy grabs Andy Garcia, and Andy Garcia goes, oh, you want to dance, sweetheart? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, my Um, God. At this point, Michael and the family go to Italy because they got to solve this stuff with the crime family uh, or with the the Catholic Church. There's also a scene where... um, and. Maybe this scene isn't necessary to talk about, but there's a scene where Michael is doing basically like a press conference about the money that he's investing in the with the immobiliary. Immobiliare. I have a vision for a new kind of European conglomerate. <laughs> yeah. So he's <laughs> That's pretty good. He's doing this. He's doing this press conference, and in the midst of the press, like in the midst of the press conference, a reporter stands up and asks a very basic question about it. <laughs> But like they should have one hundred percent been prepared for, and they're like baffled. The lawyer has to get up and be like, "Um, uh, well, actually, um, um," and it's like, "What the fuck happened to this family?" In the second movie, they're in front of like a Senate like committee, yes. and, oh they're my just, God. and they're just like rolling senators, just like fucking them over, and like the senators have nothing on them. Some fucking scumbag local metro reporter gets up and is like, "Is it true that you are a gangster?" And they're like, what? What? <laughs> and everybody in the room is like, a gangster? Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. It just, like, goes to show you how, like, how I think, as we've been saying this whole time, how little effort Coppola put into this movie, I think. Um, but then they go to Italy because Michael's son is going to be a, an opera singer, which is very cute. And um, they, the family goes to Italy and they go for the Vatican. And while there, trouble ensues with Eli Wallach. Um, and uh, Michael and uh, Diane Keaton, who used to play Kay in the first two movies, but now plays Diane Keaton in this movie. <laughs> um, She's just dressed uh, as 1990 Diane Keaton. No. You know, there's... <laughs> And there's like apparently Diane Keaton and Pacino were dating when this movie was made, and I really felt like that whole sequence where like he takes her out for a a day on the town was just like Pacino and it was like Francis, let's shoot something with me and Diane just walking around together. It'll be nice. We'll go out to the country. It'll be beautiful at a sunset. You know, she's wearing a nice coat. I had some issues with the the Diane Keaton thing. I thought it was once again it was just kind of like for some reason. I mean. As we said, I guess Coppola didn't really want to make the movie, so I don't know why he would recut it and try to pretend that he wanted to make it now. But it it doesn't. Well, he said. I guess he said like he wanted to make it his. He wanted to make it his way and have it be like basically a big, long, dragged out like Michael punishment, right? And they wanted it to be like probably like a launching pad for another generation of Godfather movies, which is how you get Andy Garcia like being the godfather at the end right like if you're like i think you're right like probably at the time andy garcia was a little more considered like a oh this guy's gonna be like the next thing right if it was made now it would probably be like you know adam driver in that role or oscar isaac or something and you're like oh yeah like we could build a franchise on this guy and like do another three movies but it didn't go anywhere so it doesn't matter it would 100% be Oscar Isaac. You're it would be Oscar right. Isaac. It, if it was Adam Driver, it would be good. If, but it would be Oscar Isaac. Yeah. <laughs> so Garcia, at this point, is coming off of the Untouchables, Stand and Deliver, 
Black Rain, Internal Affairs, which is actually a classic. Internal Affairs is really, really great. And some movie called The Show of Force. But he's got a few movies behind his belt. And 8 Million Ways to Die, which I think is a... Wasn't that Seth MacFarlane's movie? Wasn't that? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, now they're now they're in Italy, and um, at what at what is actually happening with the Catholic? Someone explain to me what's actually happening. So that part's really confusing, and and I don't think they were, that part is incredibly confusing, and it's basically like bullshit, bullshit, bullshit is like the like what it would be, but it, eventually Michael has put a bunch of money into the bank, right? Into the Vatican. I think he donates like what, like a million dollars or something, or five million dollars, whatever the hell it is. I think it's like a hundred million dollars, hundred million dollars, yeah. whatever it is. And he thinks that's going to buy him a seat at this immobiliare and like give him controlling interest of the bank, so it would like supercharge the Corleone's finances. But basically, the Vatican Bank just takes his money and is like, "Nah, fuck you. We're not going to put you in charge of anything." And he only has the support of the Pope. Who then they murder? Like that's a part of the movie. They murder a pope. Your eminence, your eminence. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty good. I, that's good. I don't know. I was like, yes, this is a great. What a, a great ratcheting up of the stakes that we just really <laughs> murdered a pope. And it's honestly, they don't spend a lot of time on it. The idea of the pope getting murdered to the scene where the pope gets murdered is maybe like twenty minutes, which in this movie is like nothing. So it's like it just right. kind of comes and goes. Like, so basically, like they double cross Michael. Michael thinks he's going legitimate the whole time, and then winds up realizing that actually the real legitimate world is just as crooked and bad as the other world, and he's too stupid to realize it. I mean, a lot of the movie is like Michael being either really stupid or uh, really, you know hubristic and not realizing that he's or just like he's totally not in touch with reality at all in the movie and i find that really compelling too because again like you're talking about michael corleone who like is a sociopath and like you know a very determined uh figure in the first two films and then in this movie he's just like man he makes so many stupid decisions and like ends up getting every you know what i mean like he ends up totally sacrificing his family basically for nothing i think that's a good arc i actually do isn't it strange that he would consider the straight world to be on the straight and narrow when in the first movie he says to Kay, yes uh, come on come on senator senators don't have people killed who's being naive now and in the second movie he's like he's he's like once again he's testifying to those senators and running circles around them and he gets that senator caught with a with a dead with a dead prostitute right and so he can blackmail him and i mean he's constantly, he's constantly been blackmailing and working the straight world so for him to suddenly be like this is how we're going to go straight and on top of that what does he need to go straight for when he has a billion dollars <laughs> Well, his ego, I guess, right? That's his whole thing. Is like he thinks that he's gonna, like, he wants to win back his family, who now hates him, and like atone for the sin of killing Fredo, basically, right? But like he's, he's out. never, he's out. That's why. Like, I think that's probably that's the reason why, right? Like, I think he's like trying to come up with reasons for him to like forgive himself that he can never do, and even like when he gets the like even with the Vatican. Uh, when he gets the confession, like you were saying, like that's a good scene. But like even there, he doesn't really follow through on any of that. He like admits to killing Fredo and just like kind of moves on. Then they run whatever like random montage scam to kill all their settle all their family debts at the end of the movie that he gives his consent to. 
and is just like still like not listening basically right like the world is telling him to like not be a mobster and he's just like well i could still do it i'm fine Interesting. do you think though can i ask your i i I, I know that you have taken that from this movie, but do, but do you think the movie actually develops this well? Develops which well? Like the, what you what you just talked about, Michael's arc. I think it does do that well. I don't think it does a lot well, but I do think the Michael stuff ends up paying off because I just think like so many of the scenes are about like Michael being like, I'm going straight and this is great. And, you know, I really did this and I'm going to atone for my sins. And then in the last like 30 minutes, basically, he totally doesn't really do that because he's not willing. Basically, the Michael is not willing to put in the work of like atoning for anything he did wrong. He just wants someone to tell him that he did something wrong and is forgiven he doesn't want to like take like a you know more internal look at his own problems, and then he ends up like Mary gets killed, and then that's it. Like then he's like left all alone. That's why I like the one thing I do love about the recut is the ending without Michael. I mean that is a really corny part of the third one, right? And the the movie ends with like Pacino sitting there and just like slumping over. It looks like he's falling asleep. And this movie, the recut version, it just ends. So like Michael is forever in perpetuity of like you know in his own making of hell. Yeah. I think that's kind of cool. I do like that ending. I think I that's like, a great punishment for Michael, especially because Michael is a character that like people love, right? Like you're not supposed to love these guys. I don't think, you know, but like, it's the same thing like Goodfellas where you're like, yeah, like I like, we root for Michael. Like he's the hero well, of these the movies, thing. even though he's like an evil dude. And like in this movie, I think it's like showing you how stupid it is to root for that because like, he's just such an asshole. Well, see, this is the thing. Wait, like, so you're, I mean, maybe this reveals me to be not very deep or sophisticated, but like watching the film, I mean, it's like you're saying, like you, you find yourself rooting for Michael, identifying with Michael. I mean, maybe it's because all the other like, you know, truly great actors are not really in the movie anymore. So you've got like Pacino alone kind of, right? So, you know, as much as you're right, obviously the movie does at the end, Michael is punished and then he lives forever in a hell of his own making in this new cut, right? But it's like, I think up until that point, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily clear from the movie that he's doing things that are stupid or that he's acting in ways that are like, he's not doing the right thing. It kind of, he seems like he's always trying to do the right thing and be decent and like, I, you know, I, you feel like he's the victim. You, he's the protagonist of the movie in a lot of ways. And I, I feel well, like, I, I don't think the no, movie has this distance from him, you know? I think the movie wants you to like pull for him because he's Michael, but I think the ending is like the pulling the rug out where it's just, is like, he's not, you know, he's not really, he doesn't, he, she gets killed because of him basically. Right. Because he's like not willing to kind of like let the mob stuff go. Because, like, they do go through all that stuff, and he knows that, like, he shouldn't be doing this, right? Like, he knows when he's talking to, what's his face? To Andy Gar Three character Andy Garcia, that he's like, you know, this is maybe a mistake or whatever, and he lets him go ahead, and they're going to do settle all family business, whatever bullshit stuff that they're going to do. I don't know. That's how that's what I took away from the end of it. So I like really like the ending. I think is good, and I think like those last scenes are good, and that opera scene is like kind of like, you know, it's like b-grade godfather montage stuff at the end but it's still good stuff you know what i mean like it's like bad pizza is still good pizza so i'm like the end of the montage is like i'm like yeah like do settle all family debts this is great kill that guy fucking throw him off the steps down the thing that's a cool shot hang the other guy from the fucking rafters i don't know where they even do with that guy uh, <laughs> you know just like give uh, eli wallach a poison cannoli oh my god so wait just to talk about this i love this poison cannoli 
I love the fucking poison cannoli thing because it's like <laughs> Talia Shire's giving him these poison cannolis. She's watching him with opera glasses from across the thing. He looks like it looks like she must have given him like thirty cannolis because he's eating them continuously for like an hour, and he's like licking his fingers and like it just. I felt like it went on for like a comically long amount of time. The other problem with the movie is that again, now I'll go back and trash it a little. But the other thing I have a problem with is that there's just not enough people in it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like yes. this. Yes, that's what I was saying before. But the, soap, the soap opera aspect of the first two movies. There's all these different characters, and there's yeah. their, their their plot threads are so clearly drawn. Yeah, you. That's where all this tension comes from. Whereas in this movie, there's in in this movie, there's a redundancy in terms of the scenes. Like you're consistently being told the same thing over and over again, yet nothing clearly. So you're like, it's convoluted, and you're like, what what is this story here? What's going on with the Catholic Church, and why am I being told? for like a third time that he loves his daughter. Like I, 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 I've seen all of this. I have a question. Do you think, do you think that we, we love Michael Corleone so much because he's kind of like the Dante Hicks of the Godfather series. Like he was, he wasn't even supposed to be there that day in the first movie. (laughs) (laughs) And now he's become the Godfather. (laughs) Well, I think you love him in the first movie because he's like, the regular guy, right? You know what I mean? Like he's our entrance point into the movies. So he comes in as like a normie and it's like, look at all these Italian guys and they're all in the mob. And he's like walking K and then us basically through like the mob and stuff. And then like, you kind of like, Oh, like he only comes in because he wants to save his dad and blah, blah, blah. So you're like kind of pulling for him, I think in that first movie. And then slowly it's like, Oh wait, this is bad this is bad. And then like by the second movie, I mean, he's just like awful. Right. Like, I mean, the stuff you mentioned, like he has like the, they literally do kill a prostitute to frame that Senator. Right. Like she is dead. It's not like a, it's not like an elaborate, you know, game scenario. It's like, no, they just murdered this poor woman to like set up like the Senator. Like he has no remorse for anything. Really. He ends up killing his brother. Uh, He's a terrible guy by the end of that movie. And it's like, you know, Sorry, then you're coming into this one. It's just like, okay, like, I guess we're going to see him try to make good again. And you're right. It is redundant. I mean, the movie's like very, very long. That I guess the coda is a little shorter. So maybe that's like, I think he cut like 20 minutes out of it. But I got to be honest, watching that, watching the coda, I was like, because of the, like, when you guys watched it, so you guys watched the coda, did you, uh, the beginning scene is pretty bad. Right when he's like doing the the exposition with the Vatican it's Im- banker, it's impossible. It's <laughs> impossible to. Watch. It's and so is that boring. in? I, I don't remember it, if that's in the actual movie or not. I think it must be later in the movie. It's later in the movie, yeah, it's later. but it's just like opening with that. I was like, oh, this is rough. It is, and it, it, it has. It kind of has the vibe of like, like it's almost like a, a the briefing in a spy movie. They're like, "We're the Vatican Bank. We're the biggest corporation in the world." And he's like, "Well, I want to be part of you." And then it's like it just it's very much like setting up the conflict of the movie like immediately. But it also like doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense. You know what they're yes. talking about? And the acting is very weird yeah. and stilted. Yeah. You know, and it's very odd. I mean, I think you're right. Like, it definitely feels like a thing. Like. If you watch, like, again, so I watched the third version. I watched the real version, like, a couple years ago, so it's not super fresh in my mind. But even at the time, I remember watching it being like, it's really impossible to care or follow the Vatican bank plot beyond that it's just, like, money. 
like money, 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 I guess. Like that's basically it or like, you know, whatever. There's no like – it's hard to explain like the intricacies of it. And I feel like that was maybe one of the critiques I think that he clearly took to heart, I guess, over the years. Right. And was like, oh, for this new version, I'm going to throw in just this like big exposition dump at the beginning of the movie to help explain what it is. And it's just it's like still sucks. Still have no idea what it is. Exactly. But sure, it just didn't help. It didn't help. Sorry, man. You know, like <laughs> – yeah. And also, I mean, this is, I know I'm being like such a small brain pedantic person. But I was talking about Rick to Ricky about this earlier. Like, I know we're given to understand that the Corleones are like this fantastically wealthy mafia family. But okay, let's given that this movie is supposed to be set in 1978. He, so his big play to get on the board of Il Mobiliare is he's writing them a check for $600 million. Like, Chris, that's a fucking crazy amount of money. Like, we're literally, <laughs> he's supposed to be a billionaire in 1978? Like, and what did they do to make all their money? He has $600 to just write a check. Like, that's fucking wild. Like, there was barely that much money in 1978. Like, <laughs> Well, like, all that it's supposed to be is that he sold the casinos. But that would not be enough. That would not be enough money. No, not even fucking close. Oh well, I think that gets to what you were saying. It's like, if you didn't know, if I think at the beginning of the movie, there maybe is like a title card, right? That says like 78 or whatever it is. Is that, or there's a newspaper headline or something. It sticks in my brain that it takes place in like 1978. I had to look it up on Wikipedia. I, I didn't know from the movie. But, no. uh, for sure, watching it, you definitely feel like it takes place in like 1990. Like, I don't think they should have actually just said it in 1990. Nothing would have really changed, no. especially because like they based, I mean, that's what's so stupid about it is they based like Joe Montini's character is literally is supposed to be um John Gotti right like yeah, they right. made that like as like a direct connection to John Gotti who like dresses like him they mentioned that he's on like magazine covers he's clearly like a new age of gangster that is more socially acceptable or whatever and it just is like that's not from the 70s like that just wouldn't yeah, have been no, like they should no have just way. said it in like 1988 or 89, it would have, like, helped a lot of the stuff make more sense. Well, also because another thing about this is, like, so I, and maybe this is just from reading outside the text or stuff, reading on Wikipedia, but uh, Michael Corleone is only supposed to be, like, 60, I think, or, like, maybe even 50, but they, he has these, this diabetic seizure or whatever, and then he's, they basically are treating him like he's 90 years old, like, for the next, like, 45 minutes of the movie with Ch where um, Andy Garcia is like spoon feeding him soup and stuff like that. Where I was like, this fucking guy is only supposed to be 60 years old. Like I know at any age you can have a health problem, but it was like, why not set it in 1990? Because you, the movie wants Michael Corleone to be old and frail, but it's like textually he's not. It's like, he just had some kind of accident. It's like, no, well, I wonder if that's also part of like why, I mean, maybe that has something to do more with Paramount trying to be like, well, we got to set it in the 70s, so when we kick this forward to do a fourth and fifth one, they could be like <laughs> oh in the God. 90s and we could catch it up. <laughs> it's so weird. Oh. It's so weird. So we didn't talk, we haven't talked about uh, Talia Shire yet. Talia Shire? Talia Shire. Shire. We mentioned Talia her, Shire. Shire. We mentioned her briefly, but she has no arc in this movie I, no. I i get that she ends up being the one that gives wallach the uh the canola the poison cannolis but she is solely a background actor with lines <laughs> in every like in almost every scene of the movie it's like cut to her being like yeah we should do that michael cut away <laughs> like, well yeah and again every scene. i do think that that's because like they really ran out of I mean, the argument is that this, this one shouldn't really exist because they really ran out of characters, right? It's like he killed Fredo, Sonny is dead, uh, Don Corleone is dead. So now we're left with Michael and, 
and Tally Shire <laughs> and like who else? You know what I mean? It just is like uh, Diane Keaton. Like and they they booted off Duval, so it's like they're left with like nobody else to do these scenes, and it's like uh, throw Tally Shire in, I guess. <laughs> I like again, she's like serving the she's really serving like the role of like three or four characters, right? Because she's like yes, she's right. She's in those. She's like in those scenes where she's like a yes man to Michael that would have maybe been like like um Tessio in the first you know what I mean? It's just as like Ava Goda or whatever. Like she's filling all these different like background character roles that in the first movie were filled by like six actors. And now it's just like Tally Shire is playing the role of like three people tonight in a Greek chorus situation or something. <laughs> you know, it's like very odd. You well, it's like, like a, a- bring up a really good point sorry chris i don't mean to interrupt no, really I, you bring up a really good point about like the sticks background i love actors. to get interrupted ricky please no what i ricky what i was saying is i love to be interrupted so please go ahead <laughs> are you are you done okay. yeah of course uh, <laughs> i just wanted so, to make sure i thanked you for interrupting me it was really cool and i really appreciated it okay you know what i don't i don't remember what you I. you know what the thing is I, I don't remember what i was gonna say either so i was doing it like to the detriment of the podcast <laughs> you know like all gonna get cut um yeah. but uh the you bring up the point of like that it would have been six character actors like in the room that uh michael would have been bouncing stuff off of before that would have been killed at the end of the movie or throughout the movie would have been would have been murdered you know like luke luca brach luca brazzi or luca brach luca luca brazzi right or like ava Goda's character or even car even carlo uh whereas in this movie for some reason there are no new peripheral characters until they have to die and you're like who is this person why are why do I care that they're dying? Like the twins at the end who suddenly become oh, Andrew yeah. his bodyguards and have that whole fight scene. And then the assassin shows up. These characters are out of nowhere and have like have no arc whatsoever. Whereas in the first two movies, you had this massive ensemble. And even in the small parts, you had like Luca Bratz is a great example where he has the opening scene where he can't speak to the Godfather and he's super nervous. And then he's given a task and he goes and gets killed. So when he gets killed, you feel for him. You kind of know who this guy was. I didn't know who the fucking twins were. I didn't care when they were getting, who the fuck cared? What was like, suddenly I was watching double trouble. No dude, like, the <laughs> twins, it's literally like Miami heat level shit. Like they're all playing yeah. pool with Andy Garcia. Talia Shire walks in, they walk out and she goes, they fight as good as they look. And he goes better. <laughs> oh my god yeah there's a lot of directorial moments that are like jesus christ francis like you couldn't direct your way out of this scene a little bit better like there's like a good moment where uh, diane keaton like has to walk to another room and she goes over here and then looks at <laughs> looks at pacino off camera and like walks into the room while looking <laughs> off camera, like, like not looking into the room she's walking into. She's like oh, over here and then walks diagonal like into a room while looking the other way. It doesn't make any sense. Um, oh my God. But back to the Tyler Sheer part, she, her character in the first two, in the second movie was a fuck up. She was kind of a female Fredo. She was, she was banging all these guys that were like taking her for a ride and stealing her money and they were, they were sleeve bags yet in this one all of a sudden she's like there's no explanation as to how she's gotten to this point in old age where she's settled down and she's by michael's side and she's kind of a lady Macbeth at times and is advocating for more violence and advocating for him to be stronger but in the second movie she was a putz she was a female fredo so it doesn't that arc isn't really clear either 
my thing again i keep i'll just go go back to the michael stuff because i think that works but i think you're right like tally shire is another character who again is like forced to do like three or four characters because they don't have enough people and they didn't bother writing other characters and it doesn't really track with what we know about her from the first two movies um at all so it's like you know it doesn't really make a lot of sense why she would forgive michael for killing fredo i don't know they even touch on that in the second movie like no. she knows but i know like she just seems to like not care I well, guess because it's more they important. Have, they have that whole scene where she's like Fredo drowned and she's kind of like clearly knows what happened, but is yes, sort of yes. speaking about it in a way where it's like it had to happen. You did the right thing, you know, for the family without saying it's like the one moment of the movie where there's subtext. Right? <laughs> like Godfather One and Godfather Two are soap operas with an incredible amount of subtext in every scene. Godfather Three is without subtext at all. Most of the movie. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's barely with text, Ricky. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we didn't even talk about Sofia Coppola yet. Oh, my God. Oh, Can yeah. I say, I don't think Sofia Coppola is that bad. I know this is like, like, I think she's legitimately, she's, she seems like a teenager. Like, that's all you can say. She seems like a dumb teenager who doesn't know what's going on around her. And I think that is her character and also literally what was happening to Sofia Coppola, you know? So I think it works in a certain way. I will say, yeah, I will say that I think that also, uh, no one would have done a good job in that no. part. No, like, Winona Ryder. Winona Ryder walked from it, from what I from from what I heard. It was supposed to be Winona Ryder, and she said no, or walked like left very she, close she, to. Production. She definitely left very close to production. They said I think at the time they said she was like exhausted or yeah, whatever right. that means. Right, she, she was like exhausted. She had to like then, go. She had to like go score with Johnny Depp in London somewhere. <laughs> and, then, and then they wanted like Coppola said they wanted like Laura San Giacomo and I forget somebody else. But they were both like thirty years old, and he felt like he needed like a teenager basically to play like the part, and that's why he ended up on Sofia Coppola. But I'm like, it's just not a great part. I don't think anybody could have done a good job in it, really. I mean, like, no, it just lines, doesn't seem to work. The lines are terrible. My favorite line of the movie is when he is writing the check, which again didn't make sense to me because he'd already handed them a check. So now he's writing a new check to some foundation. What foundation is this? I'm confused. And is this part of the original thing or is it different from the original thing? Well, that's in the coda, right? Because it's weird. In the beginning of the movie, he writes that check in the coda. And then in the event, he gives her a check to give to them. Right? Like, isn't that exactly what we see? But in the real movie, those scenes are flipped. So you get him giving her the check, and you think, like, oh, great. It actually makes more sense to have it the original way. (laughs) But, like, they they don't even account for that in the coda. It doesn't make any sense in the movie. Why is that scene there? Like, who is $600 million more dollars? Who's this going to? (laughs) But anyway, he hands her the check and he's like, he's like, this is for the family. This is for the family, for us, for the family. This is for the family. And she goes, I want this to bring us closer together, Dad. I just loved it so much. It's I can't even do like you can't even impersonate how how bad the line reading is and how bad the line is. Like it's just uh, it's fantastic. Did you like? I know this is so trite, and like Ricky, please feel free to cut this out. But watching the movie because there is this whole subplot that kind of happens where the way that it's ordered in this movie, it's almost like he's laundering the money to the Vatican through this foundation thing, which Sofia Coppola is supposed to be in charge of, I guess. And there's sort of a scene where she's like, is, is this even real? Like, is this actually real? And he's like, no, no, it's good. It's supposed to help people. Um, I found myself like 
I bet this is what a lot of like ultra wealthy father and daughter conversations have been about. Like, is my foundation even real or is it some kind of weird crime thing that you're doing? And it also made me like very specifically think of Donald and, and Ivanka Trump. Like, was I, I felt like I was getting a lot of insight into Ivanka Trump's like worldview and life experience by watching this movie. Like, uh, you know, did, did either of you guys feel this way? Like, I thought this was like a pretty obvious like thing going on in this, well, you know, from 2020, right? Like, it was like, yeah, this is exactly what her life must have been like, you know? Yeah, I thought that too. I agree. And it definitely seems like it is a front, right? Or did they not say it's a front? It can't possibly be real. Well, they don't like, like 100% say, that. but he seems to obviously be lying. Like, it is. Like, yeah, he's a liar. He's no lying, way. Yeah. Why, but why, why isn't it real? He's worth a billion dollars at this point. It doesn't have to be a front. He doesn't have to be a gangster anymore. This is my major problem with the movie. I realize maybe for, like, morality reasons, he wants to be... Uh, he wants to be absolved by the Catholic Church, but financially, he doesn't have to launder money anymore. He's clearly already sh on the straight and narrow. If He's you so have a billion dollars, just big. start a business, you know, or invest yes. in a business. <laughs> or just have a billion dollars. Like, what do you, you know, buy a wing at a college and, like, you know, retire in that, in that town. Buy a hospital wing, right? Buy a Go hospital wing. Although supposedly Zuckerberg's in trouble now for buying a hospital wing. Or a whole hospital. That's, that's only because they don't want his name on it, I think. Yeah, well, he did. Or like, is it for more than that? No, I think it is just for that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you want to move on to these questions that we do, Ricky? Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. Before we do that, let's just briefly talk about the end when Sofia Coppola, Sophia oh. Coppola gets killed. Right. Okay. Right? Yeah. So the final scene of the movie is, uh, or not the final scene of the movie, the final scene of the movie is Pacino uh, being a Sicilian that never forgets. Uh, but prior to that, his daughter gets murdered on the steps of where his son has been um, singing opera, which Diane Keaton and Pacino were just dazzled by. There's so many shots of them loving their son sing opera. I mean, he's doing kind a good of, job. Kind of I yeah, and I thought it was cute. He's a terrible actor, but he's good at opera, which I think he was mostly supposed to be there for. He's yeah. as good of an actor as Sofia Coppola is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So the assassins come running out and they go to shoot Michael and they shoot his daughter and everyone's just like a kerfuffle. Everyone's like, what's going on? And then he looks over and she's got blood coming down her dress and she goes, dad, and dies. Literally, that's the line read. She's about to die. She goes, dad, and dies. Ricky, uh, I will say as a new parent, like it really hit me. Like I was like, oh my God, your beautiful daughter. Imagine. <laughs> it's like, no. it, I, it just makes you such a sucker. Like, especially because I have a daughter. I was like, oh, oh, what a beautiful ending. <laughs> you know, Honestly, it, it hit me because I was reading and I was reading about Coppola and three years before the movie was made, his son died in a boating accident with uh, one of the stars of um, with Griffin O'Neill, the star of uh, a movie that they made in 1987. And in an interview recently that Bilge, Bilge Ibiri, Ibiri did um, with Coppola, Coppola said that the only movie he regrets ever making is the one that his son da died on. And then he talks about what it's like to lose a son and the pain of losing a child. Oh, and it feels like really he was kind of writing that into this movie. It's the fault of Michael oh, that like his daughter is killed in the way that I wonder if Coppola blames himself for, you know, making this movie with this particular person and his son dying at the hands of that person in a boating accident. You know, I'm sure I wonder, I'm sure he was working out some some stuff in that moment and it's also his child getting killed on screen yeah he cast right. his child to get killed on screen so Dude, it's well, all kind of wrapped up in that 
I mean, that would be pretty fucked up for Sofia Coppola. Like, if your if your brother had died just like two or three years previously, and then you have to act like you're dying for your dad, like that yeah, sounds really I mean, fucked dude, up. Yeah, dude, directors are weird. Dario Argento cast Asia Argento in like really fucked up scenes <laughs> in, in in movies. Directors are weird. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I just thought we should talk about her ending where she dies. I like I like that ending for the context, uh, almost outside the movie that uh, that 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 is provided for it. I think it's kind of I think it's pretty. Tragic. See, look, we have something we could all agree on. Uh, the ending <laughs> yeah. is good. I think that ending is really good too. I think it's good. Yeah, I think. Yeah, it's good. It is. and I think the way it's shot is really good too because you don't you don't it doesn't seem like Sofia Coppola has been shot and they reveal it in a way that's pretty well it's like the crowd parts and all of a sudden she's standing there totally normally in her party dress but she's got like a huge circle of blood on her yeah and she does she says like daddy and then she falls over and dies I think it's I thought it was really well done I really like it I think it's really good should we move on to the questions yeah let's do it okay so uh we have three questions that we do at the end of our um our little podcast here. Uh, the first question, uh, Chris Rosen, will is, yes. is you, and it's what is your favorite part of the movie? Very simple, simple question. Uh, my favorite part of the movie is, I'd say, actually the ending. I think the ending is great on the steps. We were just talking about it, so maybe it's a cop-out, but I think the way uh, she dies and the way that he films that scene and then the Pacino scream, I think, is great. I'm, like, way in on Pacino and the way it's silent and then, like, you get the full... Uh, agony of his scream is like really affecting and very it is very sad i just think it's very sad at the end i think it's more sad at the end of this movie than the other two movies i think the the sadness that is reached at the conclusion of this outdoes even the fredo sadness because the fredo sadness is like wow that's fucked up michael such a scumbag <laughs> and this one it's just like just really sad because like she really is like basically innocent as an innocent bystander as you can get. So I, I'd say the end. I think that's my favorite scene. Yeah. Uh, Chris Chapin. Um, I, this is um, like on a different level, my favorite thing. Let's say what I thought was like the funniest and really stuck out to me a lot. <clears throat> we talked a lot about this scene where uh, Joe Montaigne gets killed in this thing that Andy Garcia orchestrates. This whole, it's like a, at, a, at an Italian, it's like San Gennaro festival, right? It's like a big uh, parade yeah. and they, there's a big... Like, a, a San Gennaro festival without any police presence whatsoever, yes, apparently. No. <laughs> no, there's a cop there that murders uh, Joe Montaigne. Yeah, <laughs> the one cop who's there, Andy Garcia. But so after he shoots Joe Montaigne, like he shoots him twice, it cuts to a really tight close-up, and he goes, Zaza! Yeah. <laughs> like, That's great, yeah. <laughs> that was like my absolute 100% favorite part of this movie was that line reading, the the shot, like the energy, it was amazing. It was completely insane. Also, there's a very clear shot in that scene during the commotion of uh, the shooting starting to take place of um, the statue of Mary falling off of the, I believe it's the statue of Mary, it's some religious statue falling to the ground and shattering, uh, which is clearly like, you know, a very lame foreshadowing of what's to come with the Vatican. Wait, Ricky, are you saying that's some kind of metaphor? Wow. <laughs> um, I, so I, I, can I, is it okay if I have a few favorite parts, guys? This is a first for me. Oh, I really, God. I really Jesus do. Christ. But I'll, I'll, I'll make it fast. One thing is not a favorite part, but it's a favorite thing, which is Pacino's exhaustion, which often feels like it's in reference to the movie itself. 
Um, <laughs> there are just like many scenes where like there are many scenes that don't make sense or have a clear point, and he's just sitting on camera going, Ugh. <laughs> like, I'm with you, bud. I'm totally with you. Oh my God, um, like there's some crazy exposition going on and he's just rolling his eyes and like yes, waving exactly. his arms around like, Jesus Christ, what are you fucking talking about? <laughs> yeah. Like even even the first scene in Coda where he's he's with the accountant for the Vatican and he's just got his head in his hands and he's barely listening. <laughs> so like, bored. I, I'm, in, I'm like 100% with him in that scene. So he often feels like a reflection of the audience throughout the whole movie. This is what I was saying about like, well, I just felt like I identified with him so strongly <laughs> throughout the film, you know? Um, and then uh, the next one is uh, Bridget Fonda. Um, she's just so beautiful. And yeah. she was such an, a, an incredible presence that just went away. Uh, after like what 2001 sure 2000 I mean 9-11 is really what sent her off I heard no after like 2000 or 2002 I don't know what it yeah, was yeah her and Gilbert uh, Gottfried were making all these 9-11 jokes <laughs> Bridget Fonda's Affleck jokes um, and uh, so we didn't talk about this part we kind of mentioned it or maybe I don't I don't think we talked about it really but when uh, Diane Keaton arrives in Italy and uh, Di- Al Pacino wants to take her out, but she basically says no. And then she gets in the back of a car, supposed oh, to have a driver. <laughs> and the good is an interesting way to put it. And, and she's like, "Driver, take me here." And all of a sudden, Pacino turns turns around. He's Michael Corleone. He's Michael Corleone. He turns around and takes the hat, the driver's hat off, and goes, "Buongiorno, madame." <laughs> like what the fuck? What the fuck is happening? Are we sudden? It's almost like Diane Keaton stepped in and was like, "Can we make this a little bit more of a Diane Keaton movie right around <laughs> now?" Like a Nancy Myers movie, more just for a little bit. Yeah. Buongiorno, Madame. Um, and then I also still like love uh, Garcia's first scene in Corleone's office. It's just so whacked and far out and makes no sense. And his performance is so <laughs> surreal. It's like a bad scene study class where someone had seen a De Niro performance in Mean Streets and was like doing that, you know, like someone saw Mean Streets too many times, showed up to my scene study class and you're like, oh God, please stop. Please stop doing this. (laughs) Um, So the next question that we ask is uh, because we started this podcast 30 years after 1990, everything that we talk about is going to be in the 90s for a while. Chris, what is the most 90s thing about this movie for you? I got to go back to the, the leather jacket. I just feel like that is so 90s. It looks his outfit, everything about him looks like I would imagine uh yeah, like very 90s. They, he looks like he could have walked onto the set of Sopranos uh you know later that decade and been totally fine. So, I would say the leather jacket. I think it's a terrible costume choice based on the era it's supposed to take place in. And can you think of one costume choice that feels 1978, 1979? No, I, I think, think Pacino has like, uh, like, doesn't Pacino have like a Mister Rogers sweater on at some point? I just yes, feel like yes. that like, kind of looks That's like nineteen ninety-two. Like oh, I don't know. Like he's, he's elderly. He like <laughs> this like, just goes with being the age that he is. He's like in his home and he has a diabetic seizure or like <laughs> I know. he's wearing like, his he's reading glasses. He's in the kitchen, you know. Like that's just yeah, standard but, issue. Of course, he's got a Cosby sweater on. Um, <laughs> Like the ties, uh, like it would be so simple. Just the ties, you know. Like yeah. the t- a man's tie in 1978 took up most of your chest. Like that's they're just they're not wearing those on at all. Not even close. Not even close. 
Oh, Chris, I forgot, Chafin, I forgot to bring this up earlier. You know who makes an appearance in the movie who made a big impression on us in a movie earlier uh, in the 30 years um, uh, oeuvre <laughs> of movies that we've watched? Rick Avales. Avales oh God, who is this? Who plays, he's, he's the guy in, um, in Ghost that gets carried away. Oh. Patrick Swayze gets carried away by the ghosts. Who is right? he in this movie? Um, He's one of the hoods that that gets that breaks into Andy Garcia's oh, house. Really, the second the second one that gets killed, not the first one. Oh, the like the sympathetic one that Andy Garcia like murders, basically. Yeah. Of course, the sympathetic one. It's Rick Avalas, who was so like good. so sympathetic looking, right? Like, I mean, that's why he's so great in Ghost. And we did Ghost on this on this show, and this was like this performance is like one of the best things about Ghost was this hood that you're supposed to kind of hate, but actually you're he's very sympathetic, and it's really sad when he goes to hell later on in the movie. Uh, I would recommend checking it out if you haven't. Um, my like '90s thing for me, I gotta just say like this sort of like top line cast, like everybody who's not Diane Keaton and Al Pacino. Like we're talking. I mean, we keep we said it the whole show, but it's like Andy Garcia, Joe Montana, Bridget, Bridget Fonda, and George Hamilton. Like this is extremely early 1990s casting. Like only between 1988 and 1993 is this the major cast <laughs> of a major film, and they got everybody. You know, like. Yeah, everybody who's going to do a gangster voice on The Simpsons for the next 25 years is in this movie, you know? Uh, I'm going to say, I'm going to take a cop out here and say the most 90s thing about the movie is the whole fucking movie. The entire (laughs) fucking movie feels very 90s, does not feel 70s. And if I really had to choose one thing, um, it's basically what, it's kind of what you said, Chris, and I've already said her name a couple times. But Bridget Fonda, she didn't have a career after the 90s, and she was really big in the 90s. Oh, my um, God, yeah. And, 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 and that was it. Whereas, like, Andy Garcia was kind of done, I think, by, like, 93, 94 in terms of, like, top billing. Um, Joe Mantegna as well. Like, he's, I think you said 88 to 93, Chris. And I think Fonda, you know, she had Jackie Brown. She had Point of No Return. Yeah, single that's white, true, yeah. You know, so she kind of carried through, La, whereas yeah. the others. La Femme Nikita. When, what, what you, was that from like 92 or 91 or something? La Femme, La Femme Nikita is the French movie by Luc Besson. Point of No Return is the remake with Bridget Fonda. Oh, right. Of course. Sorry. Of course. Point of No. I remember when the, the ads for that used to be on TV all the time where she's like jumping down a, like a laundry chute and someone's shot a bazooka at her. <laughs> like that was. Yeah, I saw that uh, ad a lot on TV. So the last question is, uh, it's been 30 years since this movie was born. What has it grown out of? Wow. Uh, Chris, you go first. I mean, this is a hard one for this movie. This is a hard one for this movie because like, I don't know, dude, there's so much is weird and idiosyncratic about it. I don't feel that there is... when we do sort of a lesser tier movie it's always interesting to talk about this question because there's this sort of undercurrent of like sexism and racism that is like very unquestioned to a certain degree but then a lot of the better movies don't really have it so like you know for this movie yeah i mean obviously it's like the female characters aren't treated as well as the male characters but like 
I don't know. I, I don't think that's necessarily like a, I don't think we've really grown out of it at this point either. You know, like I think that that's kind of, yeah, still it's happening. also not like, it's also not like overtly misogynist or sexist. Like so many of the mainstream movies that we've talked yeah, about. Exactly. I mean, I guess there is like, ancient. there are no people of color. I mean, I guess the, they're Italian Americans and they're supposed to be the minority. I guess maybe that's like a thing. Like, I don't know these days if you can make a movie like about the, my, like my identity as a minority starring an Italian American, like, is that like maybe that's that's what these movies are you know and i think that then they're hearkening back to like the 1900 like 1900 you know and these days it's like that i don't think you get to i mean maybe i sound awful right but like i think that that identity maybe is focused on other people of other backgrounds now you know i would say uh i i would say that uh and th- maybe this is maybe this is kind of a cop out, but and we do this all the time. But even with an IP like The Godfather, and I hate to use that phrase, you for, fucking uh, love to use it. You IP. love to use it. Um, yeah. What was the thing with Margot Robbie recently that was like it, we're gonna do justice to the Barbie IP while also being <laughs> innovative and creative? It was just like, <laughs> you just, like, I, like you should just go hang yourself because oh you sound, sound miserable to say out loud. Um, <laughs> But the the idea that like a movie, a two and a half to three hour movie like this, it would exist at this budget level with so few action scenes, right? Like yeah, right. There, are, there are kind of less action scenes in this movie than in one and two. I mean, yeah. one, like I rewatched one before watching three and one is just filled with murder. There is scene after scene after scene of grisly murder in, in, in Godfather one there there's really just the helicopter shooting. There's the Zazo moment. And then, um, and then there's the thing. And then there's, and then there's the, the sort of classic montage of taking care of business, which they should have used the BTO song. <laughs> for, for that montage, if you, if you ask me, if I was making that movie, when oh the guy was God. taking care, it would have been like, you know, you wake up in the morning. Uh, <laughs> um, but I just don't think you. I don't think even even with an IP like The Godfather, I don't think a studio would bankroll a feature film at three hours that doesn't have um, more helicopter shootouts. Like the movie would have a lot more helicopter shootouts. Yeah, right. Uh, like I mean, it's uh, like Marvel movies are three hours long. Do you know what I mean? Like yes, they make three hour movies all the time, but they have to be about like superheroes punching the planets and stuff like that you know it's not like this movie has a very sedate vibe and it, it does it i feel like it, it's operating on this kind of like collective a subconscious level from like 1989 1990 and it's kind of about like all of these rich yuppies who are getting older and who like you know think that they're going to you know live some kind of different life for the rest of their life and I mean, I, I think they actually got to, but I think this movie is trying to say like, well, don't forget about all the bad stuff you did. But I, I feel like it's like, yeah, because it's so sedate. It doesn't have a lot of action. It, it It's of a piece with a lot of other media around this time, I feel like, that's about sort of being old and rich. Like that was like a real like thing we were, we were all going to have to figure out how to deal with now, <laughs> you know, being like extremely old and extremely rich, um, which hasn't happened to me yet, but I don't know. I think at the time it was a big thing. <laughs> Uh, Rosen? So I think it's more like the depiction of the mafia. I just feel like at the time, like you're talking about 1990, 
and yeah, this and Goodfellas came out within like two months of each other. I think there was a bigger fascination with the mafia in general, and certainly like you know uh, that kind of content or whatever you want to call it. Like you know, The Sopranos came out by the end of the decade, so I think like now like people don't. I think people care about The Godfather and Goodfellas and Sopranos still, but they're not looking for like new mafia shows right like nobody's like coming up with like another godfather and nobody would care i don't think i think it's just like too dated even a concept it's like the mafia that exists in this movie and that exists in goodfellas and the sopranos doesn't really exist in the consciousness at this point anymore um and you know the irishman accepted it's hard for me to think of like one major movie that has even dealt with any of this stuff because there's no reason to, right? Like, you had The Godfather and Goodfellas and, like, The Sopranos and every mafia thing in the world that's already come. Like, what else are you going to say about this era of gangster and this genre of film? So I'm like, that, I think, is what aged that, that's aged out of it right now. Because I'm just like, I just don't think you would... Nobody would say... I mean, I guess I could see Paramount being like, we're going to reboot The Godfather just because it's the IP, like you're saying. But, like, nobody's really looking for that, I don't think. Yeah, they're making. They're now making television shows that are about the making of the Godfather. Right? Isn't that that's okay. funny? That's what it is. It's like yeah. two different projects are about making the movie, but also, they're not about the Godfather. Which I'm like, okay, I guess so. Like you could I, easily do another one of these. Like I, very I easily. Had, I had a feeling while I was watching this this movie, like the Irishman is actually the Godfather three. It's not about the same characters, but uh, no, I, I agree with you. Yeah. It kind of says a lot of the things that the Godfather three is trying to say in terms of regret the past, like the life that you, yeah. that, you that you know, it, it says all those things, but in a much more masterful way and human way. When you talk about Goodfellas, when you talk about the original Godfather, when you talk about the Sopranos, those are deeply human movies where it's like the gangsters say things like, Take like leave the gun, take the cannolis. There's all these like Michael, come here. Let me show you how to make the sauce. There's all these like weird human moments where these like big tough guys are fucking bumbling morons, right? That's exact. That's everything The Sopranos was about. Goodfellas is chock full of humorous moments. There is very little funny no, about no. The Godfather Three, and they try to maybe do it with the Bongiorno, Diane Keaton stuff, but that doesn't really work. Outside of laughing at Al Pacino, you're not laughing with Michael Corleone, or I'm like, you're laughing at Al Pacino for doing this dumb thing in this movie. Um, and I think that The Irishman contains so much humor, but has carries these themes in a much more uh, in, in in a much I don't know fucking a much better way. I don't have a better way. Well, to I it. really think like the last i mean this is like stupid maybe but like the last scene of the godfather three you know this thing michael alone in the garden which is like obviously mirroring the from the godfather one with uh marlon brando it's it's like the first scene of the irishman right i mean that was the first thing it made me think of like dollying in and on yeah the first and the last exactly i mean it's like exactly the same scene with exactly the same meaning basically even right down to like i mean with uh in the in the irishman it's like his relationship with his daughter like his he's dead to his daughter not that his daughter's like literally dead but it is about his relationship with his daughter you know yeah i think you're right i mean um i wonder if in some ways scorsese was thinking about the godfather three and at the very least what not to do <laughs> i mean the irishman's way better that i think we could all agree yeah with. yeah 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 so, 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 the irishman so, rules 
Yeah, the Irishman is so fucking. The Irishman has become a thing. I think once a week at this point, since we're all trapped in our homes, once a week I have to be like, "Don't watch the Irishman. Don't put the Irishman on. <laughs> like, if you put it on, you will not get anything done today. You'll just sit and watch this five-hour fucking movie because it's so, it's so good. Like, just don't, just, just don't do it to yourself. Um, so we're uh, we're coming to a close here. We're about. Um, half of the length of the Godfather 3 <laughs> podcast, which I think is pretty good. I mean, good. Probably about the, the actual length the movie should have been. Um, so I'm curious, Chris, have we convinced you or are you still a defender of... of no, I think... I would, I'm still a defender. I think that I totally hear... What, I understand what you guys are saying and I think I agree with a lot of it, but I do think overall it's a, it's a very solid movie, I would say. Like, I mean, I would give it like maybe like a B. You know, I think yeah, it's I like mean, I wouldn't say it's like a masterpiece at all. Fair. I think, I think it's fair. like unfairly maligned too, because I think like what where I think it's unfairly maligned is I think at the time it came out, the reviews are actually better than you would think, and they weren't that bad, and like people kind of like liked it enough, and then as years went by, it was like pile on and like kind of like this thought of as this notoriously disastrous movie, which maybe you still think it is. But, like, I don't think it's nearly as bad or as much of a calamity as that. So then when you rewatch it, like, now or, like, a couple of years ago, like I did, I'm just like, well, it's, you know, it's, it is what it is. It's not, like, the worst thing I've ever seen. So that's where I'm coming from on it. I also think Chris and I can be, Chris Chafin and I can be on this podcast, like, going back and looking at, the like, the movies that we've talked about over the course of the last half a year that we've been doing. Well, yeah. We, <laughs> we, can, we, can, we can be, like, unfairly punishing of, of or, like, less forgiving, I think, sometimes than, 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 than... I mean, that's fair. Yeah. I mean, well, I was actually going to say the opposite. I was going to say, if you look back at some of the movies we've done, like, I'm thinking of, like, sibling rivalry, <laughs> or, like... Uh, it's like, yeah, okay. I mean, get, get, put it the movie in context. Like, I think it's pretty good, you know, if you put it in. Although, you know, it's the same year as Goodfellas. It's the same year as King of New York. Like, same year as Dances with Wolves, right? I mean, those are all, like, really good movies. Yeah, those are all much, much, much better movies. I mean, King of New York and Goodfellas are perfect movies. Dances with Wolves is actually, like, an epic that is sensitively done with, like, you know, some 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 race, some some issues here and there, some white saver issues, but it's actually... Chris, when is the last time you saw Dances with Wolves? I gotta be honest with you, not, maybe not since 1990, and I've always thought it was yeah. bad, because that was, like, Goodfellas should have won Best Picture, and, Agreed. like, Ride or Die for Goodfellas, so I never even revisited it, but now you're telling me it's actually not bad. I agree that like Goodfellas should have won Best Picture, absolutely, and Scorsese should have won Best Director. There's a reason that Goodfellas is the the classic we return to, but Dances with Wolves is good. It's, it's good. Actually, yeah. It's actually good. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm actually to fine. inform you that Dances with Wolves is actually a fucking banger. <laughs> like it rules. Yeah, it's like, it's like a really, it's a really, it's a really, it's a really good big Hollywood epic, and it's surprisingly entertaining and well put together. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Really, this is the most shocking thing I've heard in weeks, dude. <laughs> so that's funny. What's, what's, what you didn't know about uh, Thirty Years Later, the podcast, is that it's just a secret mission to get people to watch. This is with Wolves and Problem Child. Like those are the two movies that it's going to morph are, into like, we, one we minute, are, each, yeah. one minute each episode for Dances with the Wolves. That's what you're going to morph into. The Kevin, the Kevin Costner, Kevin Costner is our like treadstone, and we will. Oh my god! Do disinformation to get people to watch oh dance. Oh god! Yeah. Um, um, 
Well, Chris and uh, Chris or Chris Wilson, thanks for joining us, man. Thanks for talking to us about Godfather. Thank you for inviting me. This is so much fun. I'd definitely do it again. <laughs> oh, wait. I can't wait. Look, look at the look at what movies are coming yeah, out for 1991, brother. I what you want to talk about. Right? Yeah. yeah, I will. You, right. I, would, I would love for you to be our first, our first. Oh, really fucking rule. Wow, yeah. that'd be great. All right, thanks, guys. <laughs> All right, thank thanks, you so guys. much. All right, and uh, everybody who's uh, listening, uh, or the one guy that's listening, have a great uh, Christmas. Have a great New Year. Uh, we'll be coming back uh, sometime at the beginning of January. I think we're going to be talking about maybe ski school or Lockhart <laughs> in the first week of January. Tight. That's tight. That sounds great. It's going to be some good movies. All right. Bye, guys. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.